Hello and welcome to this episode of Better Off Red. My name is Pip Adam. This is episode 97 and the 11th in our element series. We are still looking at plot and um, in this episode I talked to Doug Dilliman. Um, Doug is amazing. Um, I think it's really important that people get to introduce themselves for the podcast but the problem is that people are often quite modest Um, and yeah Doug is an amazing um, he writes incredible things he makes podcasts he um, makes beautiful film Um, he uh, also edits um, is is quite a magician as far as editing goes Um, so I was very excited to talk to him and um, the sort of um, centre for our conversation that he chose is an episode of the Netflix um, original series Formula One Drive to Survive it's um, season 3 episode 9 so um, you may want to watch that before you listen to the podcast but I think it also works without watching the podcast Uh, Sorry, without watching the show before you listen to the podcast. Um, If you are listening to this in real time, um, Doug has a film screening um, at the 2021 Dock Edge Festival from the 4th to the 11th of June 2021. Um, The film is called You Could Have Seen the Mona Lisa. We talk about it and it is an amazing film. Um, I'd highly recommend um, having a look at it. Um, I guess Doug also makes the podcast um, Ludicrously Specific, which he makes with Steve Skeet and um, Darren Waugh. Um, How else might you know Doug? Um, Doug made a feature film called Jake, which is very good as well. Um, Yeah, yeah, it's it's a great conversation. Um, Just that really great thing when um, a person talks about something that isn't writing and the ways that um, I think... I can sort of think of ways to um, apply the things that they're talking about. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the episode. I'd like to thank Copyright Licensing New Zealand for helping to fund this series. Um, Yeah, and uh, enjoy the episode. Thank you. Hi, Doug. Um, thanks so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. How are you? Very good. Welcome to Anahanga. Thank you. It's so gorgeous here. The sun is shining and I can see water and the stadium and ah, it's just wonderful. Um, I wonder if we could start the episode um, with you just introducing yourself, however you want to do that. Sure. I'm Doug Dilliman. I uh, moved to New Zealand in 2004 from the States and I'm now a dual citizen but lived here since then. Uh, professionally, I describe myself as a filmmaker, writer, and creative consultant, and um, day-to-day I make my living in filmmaking work, which is uh, editing, post-production, directing, and writing mostly non-fiction television. Mm. So uh, occasionally I've done some dramas like Agent Anna or Madigan's Quest, um, and occasionally I've written for pay for the listener or places like that, but by and large... um, Cutting's what I do day in and day out, and then um, I make films for fun, and then advise people on their films for <laughs> fun and such. Oh man, that's so cool. Um, I I am just like yeah, I'm on fire to talk to you, but I think I'm just gonna slow down for a minute. And okay. you've chosen an episode of a TV series for us to sort of um sort of concentrate the conversation around, and I wonder if you could just maybe describe say what it is for starters and just describe why you think that's a good it's a good example for us to sort of talk about this idea of I sort of see it as kind of storytelling through the cut 
kind of, but do you want to just talk sure. about that? Um, so for this uh, episode about, uh, or this series about plot, um, I was like, well, you know, what I do all day with nonfiction things is take footage and tell a story. Yeah. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of question about, you know, what's true in documentary, how do you shape a nonfiction story into a story uh, that is no longer the same story, quote unquote, and there's a lot to unpack in there. But um, I started watching Drive to Survive when it came on, and I'm not a Formula One head. I couldn't have named a persona probably from the last 10 years. <laughs> Gunpoint, I might have got Lewis Hamilton. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but immediately I was taken with the storycraft of it. There's been three seasons of it on Netflix, corresponding with the last three Formula One seasons, and so I've been a regular fan. Uh, and there's a few reasons I'm captivated with it. And one of the reasons I think it's good for discussion uh, in general is that unlike, say, a reality TV show, you have no idea what the real story is. You only have the story as manifested to you. Um, the fundamental story events of a show like Formula One Drive to Survive are public knowledge. You can go read in Wikipedia if you haven't watched it in real time already. This is what happened this year. This is who won. Um but what's also really interesting is a lot of sports, fundament, most sports have a built-in narrative. Mm -hmm. There's a season, there's a competition, at the end someone wins. And Formula One, out of the box, has an incredibly boring narrative, <laughs> which is that Mercedes wins, Lewis Hamilton wins, the ending is predetermined halfway through. And so, if you're a storyteller and thinking about narrative... Uh, I think it's a really interesting thing to watch because what they've done is said, look, we're not going to invest any uh, viewer interest in this foregone conclusion. I think maybe season one, they give it a bit of token mm -hmm. attention. And then by season two, they've just given up on that. And they say, look, there's these midfield teams and this is where all the competition is really happening. And that's where the stories really are, because once you dig down past that surface level, you have... 20 drivers each week for uh, representing two drivers per team, so 10 teams. So you suddenly, within each race, have either the team-level stories, which are 10 stories, and then the driver-level stories, and then potentially driver against drivers. So you suddenly have unfolding from that single narrative a dizzying multivariable complexity of possible narratives. Um, and, you know, clearly... When you look over the course of a season, it's obvious which ones will be important to some degree. But then it's also, you could probably drill down to any of those individual drivers and, and have a story emerge. Um, I chose season three, episode nine of Drive to Survive because I thought it would be quite rude to expect any listeners to um, make their way through three seasons or even one season of Drive to Survive. And it functions really well as a standalone episode. Um, if you want spoilers for an event that's already happened, that's results are public knowledge, <laughs> hit pause, go spend 50 minutes, come back. But basically, uh, this episode unfolds around two races near the end of the uh, shortened 2020 season in Bahrain, um, the Bahrain Grand Prix and Secure Grand Prix. Uh, and they have two of the most dramatic events of the season. Um, in the first episode, there is a fiery crash that is one of the most dramatic crashes that's happened in present day 
uh, Formula One Grand Prix racing that looks like impossible to survive. Uh, and in the second, a racer who is potentially on the verge of forced retirement comes from last to first. Um, and so it's not, um, it's probably a pretty obvious choice that you might tell those stories, but then how you actually take those two stories, which are very dramatically difficult to wait, and then also wait them across a whole series. I, I feel like I could kind of just leave it there and leave it as an exercise to the listener as to seeing the choices that were made and how that weaves into the larger scheme of those drivers' other stories. But um, I might just stop there and let you um, take that any way you want. Yeah, I think um, it's so, it already you've said so much, which I think would be helpful for novel writing, playwriting, it, mm. you know, like this idea of we might, you know, logically, well, not logically, but for me, it, is it, maybe it's because I'm a bit dumb, where I would think to go is the winners, you know what I mean? Right. Like follow the most powerful people. Yeah. But you're so right about this mid-level jockeying that takes place. And I think, um, like this series, I, my, um, my partner was in the room and I was watching it with headphones on and he was actually quite worried. I was, I have never <laughs> been so tense watching mm -hmm. something in my entire life. And I just wonder, do you have a sense of like there's moments, I think there's decisions in the editing, isn't there? Oh, that sure. make that tension. Like it's a terrible thing. Like if I told you the story, mm. it would be a harrowing thing. Mm. But like, and it's harrowing the, in the watch. It really yeah. is. And I just wonder, like, one of the things I find interesting about it, which may mm. not be that interesting, is that, um, and please don't feel you have to answer this, is that in the first, like, 10 seconds, we realise there's a crash. Yeah. And we realise there's a bad crash. And then I think we even get the credits, and then we're, like, is it six weeks earlier or something like that? We don't even know. We're, we're just with, um, we're a couple weeks prior uh, when the two... Uh, drivers for the Haas team, uh, Romain Grosjean and Kevin Magnussen, have found out that they're not going to be invited back to be with Haas the following year. Mm -hmm. And so I think we come in on them. Uh, but also, I think, and, and we also establish that there are other drivers who don't have a home for the following year, including uh, Sergio Lopez. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's kind of, um, there's a few things to respond to there. Um and there's been a whole diversity of response to Formula One Drive to Survive. I spent a little time last night looking at the <laughs> um, the Formula One gearheads who are very cross about the fact that they use Mercedes engine revs in place of Ferrari engine revs and that the uh, races are cut to smithereens and all of that. Mm. Um, but fundamentally, even without any of the trickery of the editing, I think one of the reasons motorsports do have this hook in is there's immediate... Uh, understanding of stakes, conflict, risk, all those things that are fundamentally good storytelling mm -hmm. things, mm -hmm. or, or easy storytelling things. Um, I mean, I mentioned in passing, you know, talking about camera person instead, which mm -hmm. would have been a very different sort of discussion because that's taking something that's very um, difficult and between the lines and building from that. And I think, I, I think anyone listening listening should watch camera person because it's an amazing mm. very different kind of storytelling but um what's 
Sorry, I think we've lost the thread of the no, big question. No, I can is, go in a lot of directions. This is all very, very helpful. This is really helpful. Good. And please, go yeah. where you want. My questions are often a bit um, yeah. weird. Um, that thing you're saying about um, this, I'm not quite sure how to capture it um, with a hook, but this idea of, um, like, the other thing that I think that makes this quite incredible is how magnificent the footage is and yeah. how close we get to the action. It's interesting because mm. I watched a few series on either side and some of those Grand Prix are during the day and the yeah. natural lighting. This one's at night. Mm. Um, there's like these, it's just, you are so close, aren't you? And like yes. that image, this is a spoiler, but that image of the, the car cut in half, the man burning inside, yes. smashing the side of the car with his arm. Yeah. Like that, I just like I mean it, it feels like gold. Mm. Yeah, I yeah. don't know. It, it's and and yet um, one could say, oh well, you've got that. It's gold. It's very easy. It tells itself. It's the story. There's five credit edi- credited editors mm. on that episode, and there's a few reasons for that. Um, I mean, one is I think just in general they'll probably have different people cutting the races and doing that. Versus doing these little stories of when we go hang with Ramon and his trainer and they're playing mm. around with stuff or, um, and there'll be, you know, block cuts of here's the things that happened on the sideline and, um, and, and so, yeah, because there, I mean, this is the different, one of the differences between prose writing mm. and editing, they're both storytelling, but prose is always like it's the next letter and then the next letter or next punctuation and unless you're getting cute and putting a powerpoint uh presentation in your novel that's pretty much it um whereas uh you have all these different tools for storytelling you have image you have sound you have all these different types of images you have the ability to manipulate the image with slow motion particularly if it's been shot that way i mean there's a key moment in the Sergio Lopez story where he's going from last to first and he's racing against Alex Alban, the uh, driver for Red Bull, whose seat is very much at risk and who the uh, likable rogue, dislikable, smarmy viewer identification will vary, but Christian Horner, the head of Mm. Red Bull, has Mm. heavily tipped that um, that seat could well be Sergio's. And um, as Sergio and Alex are going corner to corner there's this heart dropping moment for all these different reasons you know because there's the stakes for them as racers of who actually passes there's also the knowledge that we've seen a catastrophically horrible accident and we know what could happen um and that either racer you know in almost a best case scenario could simply have their car ruined and walk away Mm. in the worst you know have something much more happen so there's all these different things playing your head at once and time slows to let you process that and consider these and feel all those different emotions and and the footage slows with it i mean you're watching Mm. it almost glacially i mean um and they've shot it at whatever incredibly slow frame rate so they can suddenly let that play like they're moving 1k an hour instead of the 100 200 what you know i don't know quite (laughs) what they're hitting that curve at but it ain't slow because um there was something i was interested in as well is that one of the hard things 
it's kind of like I've been watching Fast and the Furious from the beginning again getting ready for nine and for the first time because I've seen them so many times for the first time I've started taking notice of the way that the chase scenes are edited Mm. Um, I haven't prepped you for this question so totally don't feel like you have to answer it but this idea of having to be close to a driver to get some sort of drama but then also giving some kind of spatial Mm. understanding of where everybody is that feels like a real editor's job it it is, but the editor can also only work with what's been yeah, shot. Yeah. And so this is the trick, is that, um, you know, so there, there, there are things that are easier and there are things that are difficult in editing. And so anything involving uh, parallel action where you have multiple people doing the same thing. I mean, action movies often have, you know, one guy's... I mean, you'll have Mission Impossible movies, like I'm thinking of Ghost Protocol. Mm-hmm. Is it Ghost Protocol? It's the one where there's like the car... Uh, thing in the car there's a car garage and cars are flying at them and meanwhile like there's two people fighting in a server room or sometimes you have three or four and there's this impossible balance and sometimes it's done really well and sometimes like the new Mortal Kombat movie it's just drunkenly Mm. lurches from place to place without really working and some of that can be the editor's fault or some of it can be actually you shot all the stuff in the same kind of semi-dark area and semi the same so you don't have any kind of sense of scale um i think uh, just to sort of step back Mm. broadly i think the editor's job is the job of attention it's saying what do i pay attention to now now what do i pay attention to now what do i pay attention to and that can be a very broad one in terms of shaping story beats or that can be a very narrow one in terms of what is the next cut i've shown you a shot of the wide stadium, I've come into a shot that's a close-up on a driver that we care about. I've come into the lights. The race has started. Now where am I? Mm. Am I with a driver? Am I with a montage of a couple cars going quick so we get the sense of the place? Am I on a montage? Am I on a coach looking at the sideline? Um, and and this is you know where you have this story that still has all these people involved with it. We have, you know, 20 people on the track. We have so many more on the side. Uh, who are we paying attention to and why? Mm. Uh, and those are, those are sometimes very intuitive um, things. They aren't, they aren't always, I mean, that's not always a question I'm literally asking myself. They can be something as simple as like, oh, I can see there's a nice game to play with a couple matching shots here, and that will please the viewer. You know, sometimes it's not about advancing stories. Sometimes it's about the treats. Mm -hmm. You know, that it's like part of the reason people are watching this is it's nice to watch cars go fast in pretty places, and, you know, that and there's no shame in that. You know, that's Mm -hmm. part of it. But then there's also the storytelling of it, that if you don't advance a narrative at a certain point... Um, we can't sit for five minutes and watch people go in circles in the context of this show and not have it go anywhere. And that's what separates this show, which is a condensed narrative from the people who are watching the races for hours, waiting for the one moment where something happens, Mm. you know? Mm. I mean, I'd be curious to see a cricket show done like this because I can't get my head around cricket. But is there a story behind the story? Obviously, you know, there's not going to be a bat splitting in half catching on fire, but you know, is there, (laughs) is there that story that when you dig into it, um, that can be found? 
Um, this idea of pace, I think that's what mm. I heard you talking about as well. And I was mm. just thinking about um, the awesome show that you did with um, the... I think you said that you might have invented the format for it, and I've totally forgotten what the show's called, sorry. Um, There's a couple. The, yeah, <laughs> probably hundreds. Um, the young woman writes a song, she comes... Oh yes, you yeah. can do it, yes. Yeah. You can do so, it. Um, so yeah, a uh, pop-up workshop uh, got the um, funding for it, and uh, produced it, and so to say I invented the format would be a bit of a stretch, but what I do in a lot of these episode one, series one, is what's called find what I call finding the format. Yeah. So it's like we know roughly like, you know, I didn't say oh we should get a girl and we should you know, da, da, da. but it's the question is okay now that we know roughly what we're doing what are the formal rules of this and you often um, can see sometimes shows I mean certainly in the fictional world there's examples like um, Parks and Rec's first mm. season where they're like we're doing The Office and Pawnee yeah. and then yeah. it then they do a season like. Oh yeah, no, that was a really dumb. Now we're going to actually make the show with the actors we hired and play to their strengths instead of um, pretending that Amy Poehler is Ricky Gervais. Um, and and the um, any show goes through the same evolutionary process, um, whether they can get to where it needs to get before any viewers see it or not is a separate question. But um, so the show you can do it, which is on TV and Z on demand, which I really. Um, love and feel passionate about um the basics of it were pretty simple which is that uh jason fafoe who's the host goes to a young person who plays a ukulele from 11 to 18 they have a song um he, she plays the song she or he plays the song for him and he says that's great um you're going to go to a studio next week work with a kiwi musical icon and have a day to make it a radio ready song oh i'm excited fast forward a week we get there um, they meet the icon, they um, react however they react, and then we spend the day working through it. With And so we have, um, and that sounds pretty straightforward, but there's, you know, there's only 11 minutes. It's a song, so just getting through the song mm. once takes three minutes. Mm. So, and, you know, and so they play it for Jason, they play it for the mentor on the day, they record it, and then they listen to it back at the end, and we don't have time to do any of those once. And then on the day, we have these moving parts with, um, the musical mentor, Jason, and then the musician. And then eventually, as we went on, we discovered that the um, engineer who, uh, in the back half, uh, Emily, who worked at Roundhead, became the regular engineer in the back half, and I, th I think felt a bit more comfortable. And we started integrating a bit more in a character, as a character, particularly in uh, the episodes with um, female um, talent. And they, there got to be quite a good... Uh, there could be a bit of a girls' room energy, which sometimes Jason wasn't as that didn't fit as cleanly into. You know, it's just you follow it on the day, and so it's like, what's format? What's not format? What tells the story? How much does the viewer need to know to understand this? What you know, because there's a version of that show that's very basic and very just feel good. There's a version of that show that's highly technical, where you get into oh, instead of an E minor here, have you thought about an E minor seventh? Um, and so it's trying to hit that balance of something that we were trying to really go for as broad a range as possible, where somebody like myself could watch it, mm. as I did during the dailies, and mm. say, like, actually, I'm really learning stuff about songwriting in the studio process here, and I'm interested in this. Um, and I'm also just interested in seeing these kids 
learn and grow. And sometimes you have kids who are very uncomfortable in front of the camera. And sometimes you have kids who are very comfortable in front of the camera. So you have these constraints of a format and then you have the flexibility within. And so you have to find that balance where people feel like they're watching the same show each time, but also it's different each time Mm -hmm. and, and plays to that. And you're not forcing a square peg into a round hole. Yeah. Um, it kind of blew my mind a lot. Um, I'm really interested in this idea of attention because like, it's kind mm. of changed the way I think about a lot of things. And like, um, I was just, I mean, I'd love to ask you if prose can work the same way. Like, I, I yeah. think it can. And I, when I was thinking about this, um, I was thinking about, uh, Brandon Nanalingam, yeah. who's, um, you know, comes from a film background as well. We both re- wrote for Lumiere Reader, rest in peace. Mm. And, um, the um, and he's he's spoken a lot about how in Spriggs he uses sort of this roving camera metaphor mm, and mm, mm. Um, he and so he's going from place to place and and when I wrote um, my unpublished novel at Vic I would often um, it was structured in chapters and I would kind of think about okay if this is a scene where am I coming in on in this scene what does the what where have we left from and and so there's one scene in particular where there's a big needs a big breath after it and some time has passed and so i don't love description it's one of the reasons i haven't focused on writing novels as much i get really bored writing it i often get really bored reading it (laughs) Um, you know um very acclaimed novels that start with four pages of you know, descriptions of bushes I throw across the room and move on. Um, that's just a personal thing. People obviously love them. They win awards. Um, but I did, I'm like, actually, we just need a couple paragraphs to settle into. We're at this pond. There's birds in the trees. I got the type of bird wrong the first time. <laughs> that's why we have readers who care about these things. Um, yeah. And and also similarly with um, lens choice, right? You yeah. can You can walk into a room and you can paint the lens in very broad pictures you can say you know um there's the dust on the windsill or um the stack of coins on the corner or whatever and and you think about the are you building out from the details or um like with the start of your book you just come in on the characters and we don't quite know where we are and that's because it's more important for us to get it's not important where they are. It's important to understand these very, this very strange duo of characters, and and that's the attention that mm. and and if you started that book with a two paragraph description of that room, I I think one of the things is at all times you you don't want the viewer or the reader to ask why are you making me pay attention to this, yeah. um, and that's something I find myself asking a lot, and sometimes. You have to because it's going to pay off later. It's kind of like, look, trust me that we're going to talk about this for a couple of minutes. But to take back to the drive to survive, you know, why are we, um, you know, we've had this horrible fiery thing. Why are we spending time with Sergio Lopez after it? From a structural perspective, we need to in order to care about him when he goes last to first. We don't go to the hospital. We don't go to um, the hospital spend time with a Haas coach. We don't go to spend time with Kevin Magnuson, who is his teammate, who, you know, I mean, those are all logical story choices. And so, but, but as a story architect, you need to 
spend time with Sergio to kind of reset to be like, okay, even though we've just went, gone through this incredible trauma, and it is traumatic, and it, it, it you need to still have a satisfaction of being with him from that last to first. And so um, in order to do that, we have to backload at the start of the story all this stuff about Sergio and his situation so that when we get to this this incredible narrative breaking event, I mean, it's literally like if you were structuring a narrative and then you suddenly throw off that, that in at the 11th hour, you know, that's not, you know, something that you would normally do. So you would ha you have to recalibrate the entire entirety of the narrative to make that work. And that's what's done quite brilliantly. It's very important in um, that episode. The first recognizable shot we see of a person is Christian Horner. Mm, mm. And the very last shot we see is of Christian Horner on the phone telling Sergio he's coming up on board. And so it, watching it a second time, there's all these little cookie crumbs that pay off that hopefully are interesting enough moment to moment, you're not asking, why are we here? And I don't feel like on the watch anyone asks, why are we going to Sergio Lopez? Because, but, um, but if that stuff wasn't set up, you would suddenly have this huge question like, wait, why are we here? <laughs> and, and so I think that's um, often in revision and editing um, on, on pr of prose or revising things. Um, I often say that plot's a second order problem. You know, it's like you, the story's there, but it, it's not, you know, and often, the, you know, somebody will give you the note of like, oh, we need to know now why we care about this. And it's like, no, you needed to care, know then, so you're not asking that question now, mm -hmm. um, which is just to derail into feedback, something I often find that people are wonderful at finding problems, but then feel useless without giving a solution. So they'll often either skip telling you the problem and tell you what the solution entirely or even the best case scenario i'll say this is what's wrong and i think this is what fixes it and often we as a creative will have a very visceral negative reaction to a solution that doesn't fit with our aesthetic or conception in any way and we have to step back and say they're identifying something that doesn't work and unless it's wildly specific like you know they hate jarons or you know whatever which or like you know i did, i scored a whole episode of something and a producer's like i don't like trombones i'm making it for you that's part of my job but that's you know so i went through and took out the tracks with trombones <laughs> which was relevant to that one because it was a cocktail competition and it was sudden there was a team from vegas so there was a lot of swing music mm. it wasn't like something one runs into on most uh, scoring you know um what, this yeah. is all kind of blowing my mind, especially that idea of plot as a secondary, you know, what did mm. you call it? Second order. Mm. I think I really, yeah. really love that idea. And now that we're talking about trombones, sound is mm. unbelievable in this episode. And yes. like particularly the way, also just as an aside, I just realized another reason this works is because everyone wears the same 10 colors. Yeah. Like, you know, when we go mm. to yeah. Red Bull, we're like, oh, we're with Red Bull and yeah. we go to Hass. We're, oh yeah. And the pink guys and the, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Like that just, I was thinking even that could be useful in a pro setting, you know, just like so that we you know. You can use different fonts and, and yeah. some people have, you know. Yeah. Um, but the sound. Mm. So 
and I think that it's true as well, and you can do it as well, is that one thing that blew my mind when I was watching it, because mm. I was thinking about editing, is the way that, and this, like, from my film school, this is the only thing I remember, is that you try and make the sound run over the visual edit or something like that. Mm. But, like, at the end, you build up this kind of pressure situation where there's mm. only six minutes to go, and... and um you're starting to show the different elements sort of all fitting in and yeah. stuff like that. I just think that's incredible. And it led me to think also um, about the short film that you sent me about, is it called I Saw the Mona Lisa? You could have seen the Mona Lisa. You could have Lisa. seen the Mona Lisa. Yeah. Sorry, that's the whole premise of it. Um, which is just such a fucking good piece of my of, of filmmaking. Like, oh, I enjoyed you. it so much. And I know that the two don't seem related or the three don't seem related. But there's something very clever about the sound visual in, in your short film as mm. well, if you know what I mean. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship of sound and pictures? Yeah, absolutely. Um, just to, so that film you could have seen, the Mona Lisa, will be playing at the Dock Edge uh, <gasps> Film Festival. Uh, so it'll be online from June to July as part of the shorts uh, program and then We'll see what life it has there, but it'll be on my Vimeo by the end of the year. But, um, and it's, uh, yeah, a real time, mostly a real time walk through uh, the floor of the Louvre um, to the Mona Lisa uh, that I shot in 2019. And then uh, when we had lockdown, I wound up making it over lockdown. And I had this idea for an essay film, and I don't want to completely um, spoil how the film plays out. But, uh, S there's there's all these different sound elements that you can use right there's uh there's dialogue on screen there's narration there's ambient sound there's sound design so like you know with a show like uh drive to survive mm -hmm. there's you know can be drones and and sort of these thronotic kind of things you know and, and people like christopher nolan will take those sound elements and blur the line between music and take that to its ultimate, you know, working with Hans Zimmer and people like that to their ultimate e extreme. Um, and there's also silence, which is often um, underused. And uh, Walter Murch, for instance, is very uh, keen to, like, have moments in his films where literally uh, he edited Apocalypse Now and The English Patient and um, bunches of other great stuff that I'm completely blanking on. But um, there will be moments where the sound just cuts out. Um, and we talk about often in film, there's something called room tone or atmos, where there's, you know, even when there's silence, for instance, on this recording, you'll still hear chugging along mm. at negative 60 dB, you know, my, my neighbors or the refrigerator running or whatever. Um, but when there's absolutely nothing, we suddenly relate to that differently. And that can be just a real punch in the gut in the film for instance collective that just uh did its run in theaters there's a run-up with some music at the end and you have this expectation that maybe this song's going to play over the credits and then suddenly it cuts dead um so all those tools are just part of the editor's toolkit and like any tools they can be used sparingly and very focusedly or they can be used very sloppily i mean we've all had you know, if, even if we haven't watched Married at First Sights or whatever these things are, there's the re reality shows where they throw swishes and wishes and take really nebulous things and put drones under them and punch in thing 20%. And, and there's a pretty consistent vocabulary that I, I mean, obviously I'm very au fait mm, with because that's mm, my mm, mm. bread and butter, but that I think um, 
most viewers are now all you know <laughs> would recognize the as as parody of you know the dum dum you know who's going to be the next person <laughs> to be eliminated and um, yeah and so it is it's a, it's a tool for pace and a tool and it's something that um, in a lot of the factual uh, editing that I did I like I work I've done a few episodes of a show called I Am mm. which is mm-hmm. largely first person. Uh, storytelling where a person will tell uh, about their life and the experiences that they've, they've been through that are remarkable in some sort of way to under <laughs> sell it dramatically. And often on my first cuts, I would um, just be trying to get as much of the story in and there wouldn't be a lot of breath. And the more I worked on it, the more I realized just how those moments of breath were really important because you need, you can't absorb somebody talking for 45 minutes like this and get it all in and occasionally other voices coming in and all of that. And so, you know, just like paragraph breaks in writing or chapter breaks or emphases, so are pauses. And um, yeah, and so all of those sound elements can act in that much more subtle way where you're just having little breaths little thoughts and and you know i i think now i think when i edit i think of those breaths as commas or full stops or uh paragraph breaks often because and i'll just say what you know that here's here's the content of the edit you know because often you need to figure out like we have 53 ideas Mm -hmm. here and we only have room for 37 in their current expression but also we could express 25 and give more space or we could express 43 really condensed and so it's this and one of the things is you know with a book you have as many pages as you want um netflix in this world now you have a bit more flexibility about episode length but if you're cutting new zealand commercial tv if you're doing an hour that's 44 and a half minutes plus or minus 30 Mm -hmm. seconds and it doesn't matter how great the story is uh there's a story that i can't fully talk about but it's about somebody who's born uh, this is an I am that's coming up into a situation that requires a lot of scaffolding to explain. It's not just uh, and and that people are, would be very curious about as opposed to I grew up on a quiet New Zealand farm. Everybody kind of gets that. You tell one or two memories about what it was like and you move on in 30 seconds, you know, um, whereas um, some other situations require mm. a lot more. And then there's this balance of, well, how much is an incumbent to explain that? build this world versus, you know, and this again would be kind of thinking of it as a lens, right? Am I on the extreme wide shot of this world or am I on the close-up of this person? If I'm on the close-up of this person the whole time, I don't, you know, but there's this really strange, bizarre world around them that suddenly seems very peculiar that I'm never getting out there. But if I'm always on the wide, who am I connecting with? And you know that's that's obviously not quite literal in this case but it, it's a sort of the way i think of camera distance is is all part of that yeah and i think like i i don't know like conceptually this is really interesting for me to think about writing in that way as well mm. you know what i mean and i think um oh my god sorry you're just constantly blowing my mind my, <laughs> i'm getting chills up my spine oh. about like when you said that thing about silence and like silence as the absence of room tone like i was suddenly like oh yeah fuck you know there is there's silence and then there's 
silence and yeah. yeah it's quite incredible this is a silly question um i imagine like what i find intriguing about your job is that you are taking when when i used to work in form i worked as what used to be called uh um we used to call it continuity i don't think yeah, they yeah, no, exist anymore they do actually. oh my gosh yeah. you're so like um you know, like I would take that to an editor who had like a script or marked up or like yeah, a yeah. shooting schedule or something like that. And then I think you said something so interesting when we were emailing about um, like you might get given 10 options for something, but yeah. you can only use two options. And I'm thinking about that compared with the essay film that you've made, which is right. yours. And I get, I know that it still had constraints around time yeah. and what you had and I don't did you shoot the footage for that as well yeah 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 yeah. so I don't know like is does it feel like a different process or does it feel similar and it's you know you're trying to serve the you're trying to serve the story in the same way or well I think there there is so fundamentally when you're making anything right Mm. there's a question of what am I going to make Mm. and if you're if you're doing what I do for a living which is you're getting hired by production companies who have been commissioned to make a 44 and a half minute program for a network, there's a lot of structural things answered for you right Mm, there. mm. Um, And if you're not, and you're just sitting at home and you're like, oh, um, a pandemic just happened. I'm locked at home for a couple weeks and I've got this footage that I shot for travel. What can I do with it? Um, You know, in theory, that's an unlimited set of opportunities, which is, as we all know, much worse because then you don't know what you're making. Um, there's there's a great a great series of books called Projections yeah. that were a, a journal with filmmakers, and there was one that came out uh, many years ago, and they asked filmmakers a different question. And one they said, if you had unlimited budget, um, what would you make? And quite a few of them said, I couldn't work under those mm. conditions. Mm-hmm. And 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 some of them may have just been being snarky, but I think there's also you know, without constraints, you know, I mean, you see this with like Ant Timpson's 48 hours competition, where you have a country full of people who for 51 weeks a year, you can't get to make anything. And then the 52nd week, they're suddenly like, let me pay $200 to make a film that I would never want to make under with bizarre requirements about props. Um, uh, But there's something very appealing to that, right? Because it's, you know, you it's this really constrained space. And suddenly, your creativity lasers in and so all I knew was that I'd made this one shot and um, there's a prologue on the film now originally my first cut of the film was just the one shot and um, I yeah I, it, I just decided it worked better with that and that I could use where the title falls I mean even something as simple as where the title falls it can make a difference but you know I could have um, that film in theory could have been just part of a 60 minute travel essay film you know and i could have um sh- taken all sorts of stuff i'd shot at other museums and historical landmarks and all these sorts of things but um i just thought it worked distilled so it's i think it's the the process is what are you trying to make then start making it and then does this look like what you were trying to make and if not keep going and then um then if you're lucky, in my case, if you have the freedom to say, did I accidentally stumble on something better than what I was trying to make or more interesting or what have you, because I didn't have any material conditions about that film, but I did have this 
desire to make something quick because mm-hmm. I I wrote and directed and produced a feature film called Jake, which I you know spent a year and a half writing shot and then we spent four years in post and uh, and then more time getting it out to the world and that and and so many people put so much time and love and material resources into that I mean literally you know like donations of food and all of these things that cost money not just you know turning up on the day which in and of itself for people is quite a huge thing and I'm so deeply thankful for all of that but that's such a huge amount to ask when you're not getting funded and that was um that sent me down a rabbit hole of how can I keep making things and so I went to the IML and wrote a novel and discovered that oh it's really nice to be able to just have a shot of a room instead of uh, or a, a or a landscape instead of having to spend three paragraphs describing it and um and I wasn't writing a story that I could get around that on because it relied on um unique landscapes and unique places you know you you would be letting down the reader in certain ways and and I've invested most of my adult life in the world of film and it's what I like so it's how do I do this without going broke without making ludicrous demands on the people around me and so making these humble little essay films while I build up to something that's a bit bigger but still kind of that I can do mostly off my own back seems to be a way to do that Mm. yeah I think um I just I feel silly because I just feel like a fangirl but like the profound effect that film had on me and I just think I just hope everyone goes and sees it or watches it however I just think it really there is something about images of people sort of not there's something about context shifting or something Mm. you know what I mean like it's something about having your perspective changed about an image Mm. and I think it's about attention I think it's exactly what you're saying it's almost like the voiceover tells me where to look you know what I mean like when I see this thing that I might have seen a million times and you know I think there's something really clever happening around that well something I mean the, the voiceover cuts off at a very specific time yes. and leaves the viewer yeah. um, in my own creative work I tend to prefer creating space around a question instead of giving an answer yeah, yeah, yeah. and those are very which is not something very popular in documentary right now. <laughs> it's a very much, this is why it, something is bad, this is what you should know about it. Um, and many of those documentaries are quite good and popular. Mm, yeah. But I I love just kind of, you know, I mean, part of the reason I like making these things is because maybe I don't really know fully how I felt felt about it. You know, it's, I saw the Mona Lisa. Do I get a sticker now? What, yeah, how, you yeah. know, what, was it, you know, and... Um, and also, what does it mean that I can't go see it, that none of us can, that this is this thing that, you know, I mean, I was just at a batch the other weekend and I picked up some random sci-fi book and the first paragraph was literally like, oh no, humanity, we'd had a good run, we'd done a couple things like, you know, there's Shakespeare and the Mona Lisa, but ultimately we hadn't amounted to much. <laughs> I, I'm paraphrasing the paragraph, but it was something like that. And it, it is just that level of ubiquity. And, you know, none of us in this country know when we can project into going there and seeing it and go home and that's and then there's a whole separate set of questions around privilege for the people who'll never be able to afford all of that you know and this is i mean 
I the poor people listening to this are hearing how my brain works, where every question feeds into four different mm. ones and mm. goes sideways. But I just wanted to see, can I fit a few of these thoughts into that and then present the viewer to just kind of sit with that and see how they feel. And I'd actually made it to be, um, I, I'd intended for it to um, just dump it online last year and I'd gotten really positive feedback about it and people were like, oh, you should try putting it out to festivals. So I did that and that's worked out and that's awesome. Um, and in a way I was disappointed when it didn't get into a theatrical screening for Doc Edge, but I'm like, actually this is, I think it works better on a ho at home on the laptop watching it um, because it plays into the themes of distance, you know? I mean, some films are meant to be seen communally and that film was not designed to be seen communally. I think it'd be really interesting to see what happened when it played mm. communally, but that's also, I mean, that's another really interesting thing about the difference between books in general. I mean, obviously, you know, with the written word and with, particularly with poetry or readings, um, there's a dissolve of that, but generally you know, writing is a one-to-one -one experience and uh, watching is can be a many-to-one experience and, and even many hundreds or, you know, in theory, there's no reason you can't, you know, book out Spark Arena and play The Shining or something like that. I don't know if you'd fill it up, but uh, I'd probably go. I'd be there. <laughs> if everyone would promise to stay quiet, I'd go. <laughs> but I saw E.T. at the um, Auckland Town Hall, actually, with orchestra, and that was an incredible experience. That would have been amazing. Mm. Um, Holds up. Oh, does it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. One thing that I kind of um, am quite interested in is... Um, like you said that cool thing about what am i making yeah and i feel like the storytelling gods have come to me because i feel like that's a question i really need to be asking about the project that i'm mm. at at the moment um and i just people often use that word audience and yeah. you are directly dealing with audiences and the stuff mm. you're talking about the consideration of the um close-up or the you know like is this something someone's going to watch on headphones and a yeah, laptop yeah. on a phone that kind of thing um i don't know like any thoughts on that word audience? Sure, plenty. Um, I mean, my wife uh, taught high school for English for uh, a few years, and her question would always be purpose and audience, you know, when you're writing, and that's something she'd drill in her, her students and then drill in me whenever I try to create something. And, um, and so when I'm doing my editing work, uh, there's always a tension between what do I find interesting mm -hmm. and what does the audience mm -hmm. find mm -hmm. interesting? Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty good at identifying that, you know, the, the, the rabbit holes that aren't interesting, but you can fall in love with a um, bit of footage, for instance, I, 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 you know, and you can only see things once and you can also get quite used to things, but um, yeah, you have to say, who am I making this for? What do they, want and if you're making a 44 and a half minute piece of television you're making something with the presumption that at some point somebody's going to go up and grab a coke from the fridge or they're going to be like oh i'm going to go take a potty break tell me what yeah. happens yeah and that's very different from if you're making an art film where you are operating under the hopeful assumption that everybody is going to be paying attention the whole time and you there's films like um certified copy or the loneliest planet which really hinge on just these suddenly small moments that actually change the text of the entire film and i, I watched certified copy with some friends who weren't getting into it and they talked through a whole the whole bit where she leaves the cafe and comes back and it's just like that's the film right there that 
moment and nothing about this, you know, and The Loneliest Planet has a physical, have you seen the film? I haven't. Or, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a story about um, uh, a couple that goes uh, backpacking somewhere in Eastern Europe and they have a guide and they encounter a perilous situation and something happens basically in the blink of an eye there that colors the entire rest of the film such that even though they survive that encounter, um, everything about their dynamic is permanently changed. Mm -hmm. And if you look away for those two seconds, you've missed the whole thing. So, so yeah, so I, there's, um, in terms of how you pace and dull out information in a show for uh, TV, there has to be, we have to make it clear what's going on. We have to make it clear to some extent the emotional uh, cadence of what's going on. So again, you lean on music uh, uh, probably more than I, I would prefer to, you know. I mean, I, I struggle with, and uh, some of the things I cut, there's much more music than I would prefer to use because it is... Um, emotional um pokes in the side to tell you this is how you should feel about this this is a happy scene this is you know and and i i there's places where i was just like oh i'd like there to be more ambiguity um but you know you have to sometimes you have to take somebody to a place or you have to foreshadow it's like okay this is the part where it's going to get serious now the good thing is sometimes you can play um games with that you know is that and that if you you've done the scaffolding in, in advance, somebody knows there's going to be sadness, and then when the moment happens, you can just maybe let them sit with that and then bring the music in. I'm, I just watched Remains of the Day the mm, other night, mm. and there's the scene where um, at the end, I, I spoilers for Remains of the Day if you're like <laughs> me and didn't catch up with it till last night, um, where Anthony Hopkins watches Emma Thompson go away on the bus, and that plays all out with natural sound. And the director trusts us to fill that space with our emotional relationship. And then eventually the music cue comes in, but much back way. It doesn't, it, that's what, that's what I hate is when music preempts my chance to have an emotion. And, and there's films that I often think are this close to being great, but just, lose that faith in the audience. That was my biggest um, problem with Nomadland, which is a film that there are a lot of things I liked about, but just it just felt like the score needed to tell us things I could come to on my own. Mm -hmm. so. And it's, it's so interesting, isn't it? Like I was just, in my mind as you were talking, I was imagining what happens when you, um, what's the word I'm looking for? When you go... I was just thinking, like, with You Can Do It. Like, I'm yeah. expecting there will be a song at the end. People will be happy with that song. It'll be great. And I'm yeah. thinking, there's a totally different, you know, outcome of, you know, they play the song and the mentor says, oh, no, that's no good. I can't work right. with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, that's a totally different movie. And yeah. I'm thinking that, like, the things that you're saying are so interesting to me. You know, and I'm thinking with, even with Drive to Survive, like, that mm. promise of the accident, I, I know that's a terrible thing to say, but, you know, mm -hmm. the promise of this accident in the first scene, like, I better see that accident at some point. Yeah, you know? well, I and know. that's and that's actually teased all season as well, right? Really? Yeah, yeah there's, because there's coming up, coming up later uh, in the season. Um, yeah, and it's, it is, um, that, and that's, you know, every 
everything, whether it's a 30-second commercial or a seven-hour Hungarian movie, you know, makes a promise to the audience. And if you break that promise to the audience, uh, that is very dangerous stuff. And it doesn't matter if it's objectively good or not. And sometimes, look, I mean, some of my favorite films that I've seen, you know, um, you know, Dogtooth or... Um, mm -hmm. uh, the Wayward Cloud, um, Audition famously, right? Aud you know, Audition comes in a, a, and, you know, you could expect a certain thing and people famously showed up not knowing where it was going. And and my film Jake does a similar mm -hmm. thing, which really made it a very, it turns out that's a very difficult thing to market because the people who would have liked where it twists dark in the last third really struggle with the first two thirds and vice versa. The people who were, you know, happy with like this kind of, offbeat comedy that suddenly you know goes someplace that to me is a logical conclusion but also dark and um i think you, you also talked to mentioned this sort of like why do you have this thing in front i mean this is a common thing that you see in genre pieces like mm, um mm, mm. bone tomahawk starts with a very violent bloody and completely unnecessary scene um because the next hour and a half we're just hanging out with a bunch of people and not much happens but because you've had that in front you know oh, this is going to go some places. So if you're in it for that, stick around. And if you're not in it for that, you should probably leave now because you're not going to be happy with where it mm. winds up. Mm. And and that's, you know, horror films, that's become more and more a common thing to have some kind of scary thing at the start. And, and I like my horror films to build and start start quite, quite uh, quotidian um, and just kind of build from this mundanity. I mean, not always, you know, it can be, great if something's crazy right off the bat um and you know possessor or whatever but um i um do, but i do love uh trusting that and that and that's that real question is as how much trust do you have in your audience and that gets into especially in film it gets into sticky questions mm. about saleability and audience commitment you know um conversely though when you've bought a book you've often read the thing on the back which often gives away the first two-thirds of the narrative you know and so that's it's, there's all these different questions about how has your audience member become invested what do they know what do they expect and what have you not planned for that suddenly the marketing suddenly ruins mm, mm. you know and it's almost like teaching someone eh? like it's almost like you're mm, teaching someone mm. how to watch this piece of yeah i was just thinking i watched um i'm really embarrassed but i watched mandy for the first time um with nicholas cage um maybe three weeks ago yeah. and like that I that film is quite amazing. It's like, yeah, I love. Oh my god, Panos Cosmatos. His stuff and, is incredible. But I really felt like I was being taught how to watch this mm. film. You know what I mean? And like I, it's sort of almost. It's got this strange thing where it almost elicits consent as you go through as well. It's kind of like we're yeah. doing this. Okay, are yeah. you all right with that? You know, well, it's not as handholdy as that. I'm making it sound because there is some fucking terrible shit in it but there's something amazing about this sort of like movement through i guess like i mean one of the things i'm really interested in is that you have you have a great podcast you've written about film you know about film you know like i love it when you talk about film how do you think that feeds into creating film do you know what i mean like i mean it's a silly question yeah, yeah. no it's not I a silly question at all um because it's it's really interesting because i'll um, I know some filmmakers who watch a fair bit and then others 
who don't watch as much. I mean, Brian De Palma would talk about going to film festivals and he'd be like, you know, there's 40 directors here to promote their films and I'm the only one going to any of the screenings. What are these other guys doing, you know? Um, It's very helpful in terms of other people's work, in terms of, um, you know, I have a friend who's developing a feature script and I'm like, look, you should look at these films because I think they'll inform that. It can be... and to a certain extent, it's great for discovering your own taste. Mm, mm. Um, and at some point, it can be kind of a bit overwhelming where you feel like, I've seen everything. Where do I carve something out? You don't necessarily have... There's that whole Dunning-Kruger curve thing where it's like a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And you can have that passion of like, oh, I don't know this thing, so I'll just wade into it. And mm. often people make terrible things that way. But it can also give you the courage to... It, it, it's hard and it and it also but I mean I love it and I, I that I love all those expressions of things and and they encourage me to I think it's also something that I've been encouraged to move past this sort of uh, mirage of originality um, that's something that really plagued me for a long time is that when I made Jake I felt like oh I have to have my own voice and I don't feel comfortable rifting off or giving people references from other films. And so, but I didn't have a strong expression in the place of that. So it kind of feels a bit inexpressive in terms of things like production design and mise-en-scene and color palettes and things like that relative to a lot of other films, because I really didn't have that. And and we were talking about um, Jonathan King before we rolled. And when he, I interviewed him for Lumiere and he showed me some of his lookbook from uh, reality. And it's like, oh, this is a thing do. Of course, you know, you're collaborating, you have a visual language. And so when I started developing my new feature, which is a desktop feature, um, which is to say, I'm just making it on my desktop. Mm. It's not going to be like searching or something, mm. but uh, I'm just uh, using the um, found footage and footage that I shoot myself and making it together in post. But um, I, the first thing I did was I built a, a lookbook in a proposal and you know it's just like this is this is me defining what the film is going to be and because and it's going to be a weird film but it's a film that i'm creating a structure around so it's like okay whether or not anyone else likes this it's like am i making what i set out to do and in some ways i think the weirder what you're trying to make is almost the more important that process is of finding um how do how what does this make as an object, you know, and with Panos Cosmatos, who mm. may be on the Black Rainbow and Mandy, you know, he talks about his films being these sort of remembered fever dreams of these horror movies he was scared of the covers of when he was 10 years old, combined with things that he watched as 12. And he and he'll very specifically list these are the 10 films. And you'll go back and watch a film like Conquest, mm-hmm. which is a early 80s fantasy film, and I think it's on Amazon Prime. And all he's really taken from it is a bit of lens flare and a bit of gauzy stuff. And it's like, you know, it's like nobody would take those 10 films and come up with Mandy. Mm, mm, and he did. And that's what makes it his expression that even though, he, you know, it's that whole like, you know, great artist steal or whatever the phrase is, yeah. you, you know. And so I think I think that's probably what I've, you know, a phase that like if you're a filmmaker and you're getting into films, you kind of have to work your way through everything so it's like i'm not just like i'm not just copying quentin tarantino i've all seen all the stuff he's copying and i'm taking the stuff i like from that and that i like from everything else and yeah i love i really love that idea of a lookbook because i know 
for me, I don't mm. know if you find this, but for me, it, not only is it important to have those pointers to know that I'm mm. going to it, but when I go over or away from it, I can then make a decision mm. why I'm going away from it or what, you know, maybe the lookbook could shift a little or maybe, you know, maybe the tone yeah. is slightly different or something. This is, this is why my book has never uh, reached a publishable state mm. is that it was based around a historical incident mm -hmm. and uh, and I was really passionate about making a book around that and I knew what I didn't want it to be. And so I kind of tr tried to create what I wanted it to be, but it, I never really, there wasn't really a template for what I was going for. And in the end, it was bits of a lot of things. And, and my readers, in, in many more words than this, said, you don't know what you want this to be, you know. And the way they literally said that is one of them said, oh, I like the first half of the book, but it falls apart in the second. And the other said, I don't really like the first half of the book, and mm -hmm. it gets focused in the second. Mm -hmm. And if I knew what I was doing there would be a focus that shifted, you know, and, and there's, there's structural reasons because I'm basing that around a real event that didn't have a very clean narrative yeah. uh, that, oh, you know, we prefer rising action. This has falling action, you know, things like this. And so I tried to play some games with that. But, you know, I, I never really found like, oh, I want to make a book like this, but, you know, mm. that has, that has the, you know, has these sorts of engines in it. And also... I'm just not as good at picking apart books to understand those engines as I am at, at picking apart moving images, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and maybe I could this is, get there. Maybe I will. This is often what I think about myself. Like, sorry, I'm just being narcissistic talking about myself. But like, <laughs> no, it's I it's was... a skill you have to bring to bear in terms of what you've done. It's the, I like, I've been talking about myself for an hour. <laughs> give me a break. I just think that as a like, I was not born in words. You know what right. I mean? Like, I was not raised in words. I was raised mm -hmm. in days of our lives you know like i was raised in tv and right. like i often think that what i'm trying you know like i mm. really relate to that stuff you're saying you know i went to film school i loved making film i you know mm. I, it was animation that was all i wanted to work in blah 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 and then i don't know where i think it's that thing you're talking about where i wanted to be alone and in control not in control yeah, yeah i'm not i love collaborating more than i yeah. like working by myself but i think it's just that thing that you know the funding thing was terrifying like when i yeah. was at film school a lot of it was film rather than video and that was expensive and mm. i just think it's really interesting the stuff you're saying because i think um yeah, and that's why I think Bran and I get on so well is because, like, well, like he said, well, I really like his work, um, is that I think that often I'm trying to get the cinematic on the page. Yeah. And I mean, what a disaster that can cause. It can, <laughs> but it can also be amazing, as Bran's book is. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting. I have literally the opposite experience where I grew up as a bookworm, oh, and wow. I wasn't even really all that into film. And, uh, but because I'd read so much, I was like, you know, I'm never going to be as good as... Uh, Kurt Vonnegut or David Foster Wallace or whoever I was into mm. around that time. And then um, quite late, because actually I was really into music in university, mm. and yeah, I only yeah, got yeah. into film at the end. And that was right around the time of El Mariachi and Pi and Cube and this whole kind of, you know, oh, anybody can do it for $7,000 sort of thing. <laughs> and and so that, I'm like, oh, well, you know, maybe I'll never be the next Shakespeare or David Foster Wallace, but maybe I can be the next Robert Rodriguez, you know? And um, by the time I find out all the challenges with that, I was quite far down that road. Um, and, and it is something that's quite, um, I, I did struggle with in my first film because I don't come from as strongly a visual mm. background as a lot of filmmakers. So 
I'm very good at logic and process. And I mean, I had a philosophy degree. And so that's something that informs my editing as well as really breaking that down. And I was a good, good at getting story beats together long before I was good at making the pictures look nice next to each other. And I still don't think that's um, like if I was to, you know, edit something purely poetic, um, I think there are people who have much more intuitive skill at that. Um, but yeah, so now I'm finding ways that I can integrate, uh, as with this Mona Lisa film, yeah, the visual yeah. and my interrogative sort of way of thinking about the world and prose and find ways to do that that interest me and then see if they interest anyone else. Because this is the thing, sorry to jump in, but this is the thing that blows my mind is that all the way through I've been thinking, this is a game. It's like an illusion. It's like sound, image, pace, time, you know, all these things yeah. are kind of, and that's what I was thinking with the, um, you could have seen the Mona Lisa. Like I, th my memory of it is that it's a visually stunning piece of work and I just keep wondering if there's also something happening with the words do you know what I mean like yeah. like I mean it is beautifully filmed I'm not putting down the filming at all but I just no, think yeah. there's that interesting thing that's happening where I don't know there's some connection there, there's a couple things one thing is that my friend Alistair Ty Sampson who's an online editor oh, yeah. um gave that an incredibly detailed and lavish treatment in terms of the color and also did this grain emulation to make it look like 16 mil. Um, that was shot on an Osmo Pocket, which is like a $500 um, camera that's literally like this yeah. big that fits in my pocket. <laughs> and if I showed you the rushes for it, it would look like, you know, something somebody uploaded to Vimeo. And um, and yeah, so there's there's been a lot of treatment on that side to give it that um and then i also think just treating it as a film instead of me uploading this video of like hey i went to the the louvre it was crazy take a look you know your your brain is looking at it in a different way you're yeah. treating it as a film instead of as a piece of found media or a youtube um clip mm. or something um but then also giving it the i don't <laughs> dignity sounds very self-important but giving it this voiceover <laughs> that says you know you're creating a space about it and and you're listening, but you're also in this space. And I think maybe also it, it is slightly overwhelming because there's so much to take in. And and, you, and even when you're at the Louvre without anybody nattering in your ear about the history of art, you've got a lot to take in. And so that may give it a false beauty in a way of it, like, or just give it a sense of like, oh, there's more than I can take in. Therefore, this is a really well shot mm. thing. Um but I think, I mean, I don't mean to, I don't mean to call it false. I just think that it's this, um, and I'm thinking about writing. I'm mm. thinking about this thing, how I think it's easier for me to think about film as a set of elements, but I do yeah. wonder if writing has these set of elements as well that can play interplay with each I, other. I think what you're getting at is a, a holistic aesthetic. Yes. And yes, so that's yes. something that um, was, you know, uh, I didn't look to put stills in. I didn't... Um, there was a little bit that I'd shot on my phone for some reason at some point. I didn't put that in there. I could have downloaded footage from other places. I, there was a version of this that I thought about doing where I found, uh, downloaded everybody who'd yes. been there. And you do, you do the, um, you know, the heavily montaged, like, just use different people's footage of it. And that could be a really interesting film. Um, but, it, like, if you looked at this and then you cut it next to footage from Russian Ark or something, mm -hmm. you might not be so impressed. Um and similarly, like there might be writers where 
you read it and you're like, oh, this is really captivating. This is really well written. And then you put it next to a, a writer with different talents and it suddenly might seem a bit wilty by comparison. But because that writer's fully inhabited that voice, um, you know, it's this kind of um, asking you to come in. And this is uh, something Damian Wilkins spoke about really eloquently in uh, my writing course is this, you know, uh, I wrote a piece, a uh, nonfiction piece, uh, Ekphrasis on um, Colin McCann's I Am, mm. uh, or not I Am, the um, the murals were up at yep. the time, uh, the mural by the stations, and um, there were far too many for my emotional state at the time, similarities about a friend's recent passing, mm -hmm. and I wrote a really uh, intense uh, piece that just you know it was it was just all on the page and it was all a hundred percent volume in the um reader's face and and nobody could could give me much feedback on it they pretty much just want to give me a hug mm -hmm. um and they're like, it's so strong and what they're they're like yes it is strong because it's just undiluted emotion at you and um and damien uh who was subbing in for the day either being the only one who had the guts to kind of say anything critical about this person's intense emotional like loss of a friend was like i don't just don't know if there's any space for the reader you know and that's and this is this game i think we play as creatives it's like how do we create enough space for the person to feel like they're having this their own experience that they're coming to uh, versus for a viewer to uh, or a viewer or whatever versus this fear that like if we don't say it clearly enough it might just go whizzing past them and i think that's something that is very tricky at the moment uh in part because of the demands for attention that we have and in part because of these fears that anything even slightly ambiguous can be wildly misconstrued or reappropriated or mm -hmm. what have you particularly if you're dealing with any remotely controversial topic i think about films by like you know, the Michael Haneke's and Lars von Trier's of the world and think of how they would land if they were a new creative mm. coming in today mm. with these, or Catherine Brulat, you know, mm -hmm. these things that are very deliberately provocations. You know, we don't live in a great time for provocations and there's pros and cons to that. Um, but I, th I think that all ties into this kind of who is your audience? How, how much are you expecting of them? How far are they going to come to you? How much distance are you willing to give them? And... As a viewer, I personally appreciate it so much more when I'm given that space. I got in an argument about the social dilemma recently mm -hmm. because I, I just think it's so oppressively handholdy and obvious. And the response was like, well, but for its audience, they need something that's that blunt. You know, they're, they're not, you know, I'm like, do they? Do they really? <laughs> I, I'm not 14. I'd like to think even when I was 14, this would have seemed a bit that but you know i mean i've seen other people say oh my god you know had this amazing mm -hmm. reaction to it so and that's fine not everything's for everybody i mean that was one of the most liberating things for me was i think at some point i i looked up my top 20 films and i went on imdb and i looked at all the one star reviews you know and it's like no matter what i make no matter how well loved it is it's not going to be for everybody and that's fine and that's something that i wish i like if there's one kind of gift I could give to every creative, it's just like, it'll be somebody's not gonna like it and that's okay. Lots of people might not like it and that's okay. You know, if it lands 
for your people, that's really all that matters. And, you know, conversely, when I make something for television, even if the people I consider my people are like, oh, maybe that's a little bit basic. You know, it's like, well, if it works for the people I intended it for, you know, um, that's all that matters. And whenever I can kind of get something that I feel like ticks all those extra boxes, like you can do it, or um, some of the episodes of I Am I've worked on, that's great. Um, and that, that that's a really satisfying feeling, but not every text mm. is meant for everybody. Mm. Oh my God. It just feels like <laughs> such a nice place to sort of end and yeah, come to yeah. an end. You know what I mean? Because I just feel like I think that I have, I've always had a little bit of a... Um, got a bit angry about this idea of audience but the way you just mm. described it for myself because I'm yeah. selfish and narcissistic but the way right. you've described it it feels like this collaboration which seems so much more interesting to yeah, me than, it's, it's about yeah. the community yes. the, and whether that's a it's a it's about I mean there's I've had a lot of uh, there's been a lot of sort of space if you look at my creative CV since mm. I made mm. my film and it's like oh yeah I wrote a book and I made a little short film but like and a lot of that is like been preoccupied with this what is this what is even the point of what's the point of writing something when trump is president or you know whatever um and you know i mean i think the reason beyond creative self-expression or whatever which i think is sometimes even overvalued as a as a good in the world because people can creatively self-express odious and harmful ideas Mm. but i think it's about it's just about feeling less alone you know it's about feeling like there's there's other people who this helps them make sense of the world in ways they wouldn't have thought of before seeing it. And, you know, and if you can have fun doing what you do, because, you know, ultimately nobody's making you write another novel, right? You know, <laughs> nobody's making me make another film. And that was that was a big turning point. It's like, you know, I don't actually have to make any more things. There's no... You know, I might have a friend who hits me up at a party about it every once in a while, but ultimately it doesn't make a difference. In some ways, it improves it, it improves my available income. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, if it but do it because it improves your quality of life and it gives you space to ask these questions that you know. And I'm really grateful that you've had such a gratifying experience watching this short film. And you know, and and. Uh, but there's another one that I made that I just called Postcard from Otama that I just banged up on Vimeo because I'm like, you know what? This is just a throwaway thing. And it wound up playing a little festival in Franklin for a couple people in a room, and that was nice. And maybe some other people will find it. Maybe it didn't. I put it on Facebook. A couple friends liked it and felt it made them feel a little closer to me for a couple minutes. And, you know, I made it in a day, and it was done, and that was great. Um, and sometimes that's all you need. Oh. Thank you so much, Doug. <laughs> You're welcome. You're amazing. Oh, oh my thanks. gosh. Okay, so um, this is an exercise. Um, yeah, I'm. I I tried it and I quite liked it. What I thought is that you could think of a scene, or you could take a scene you've already written. I think this works slightly better if you use a scene that you've already written. And then I was thinking about the idea of storyboarding it. So um, maybe you want to tell it in the following shots. So each shot could be a sentence, or each shot could be a paragraph. And I thought you could start with a drone shot, so sort of a flyover, then going through to an establishing shot then maybe a mid shot and then a close up 
And then what I thought you could do is go for another close-up, move out to mid-shot, move out to establishing shot, and move to drone flyover. Um, yeah, I don't know. Hmm, see how you go. Um, another way to think of the mid-shot is sort of a two-shot. So we go from huge to landscape to um, two people in a scene to close-up on one person in a scene and then back out again. Anyway, have fun with that. Thank you. Thank you.